ours. And they all happen for a variety of reasons. Uh, one of our friends ran a nonprofit in the city of Shanghai where we were living. It was a nonprofit for the homeless population in Shanghai. It was, a, it was an incredible work uh, that was being done there. They had a, a drop-in program for those experiencing homelessness who could come through and, and get a change of clothes, take a shower, have a hot meal. And he had a vision uh, that he wanted to take this and actually go to kind of a next level with it where they would transform the, the, the center's space into having a, a restaurant and a smoothie bar so that the guys who would uh, kind of graduate up out of this uh, program could have their feet under them, have some job training, and even set it up so several restaurants in the city were actually hiring the guys who would kind of get their feet under them and come up out of this um, homeless shelter. And they were getting jobs, and it was just a, a phenomenal thing they poured a, a bunch of money into it. They had to get restaurant-grade plumbing. They had to uh, get industrial equipment for the kitchen and, and all of those kinds of things. It was a huge success until the landlord came around and saw that his uh, little space that he had rented to this nonprofit had been turned into a fully functioning restaurant. And he saw dollar signs in his eyes, renminbi signs in his eyes. And so he said that his son actually wanted to rent the space and he wasn't going to be able to rent it to my friend anymore. Well, there's a law that says that anytime something like that happens, you have to allow the current tenant the opportunity to, uh, to counteroffer and to meet whatever the new rental agreement would be so that they can keep the space unless, for whatever reason, on the books, unless you want to use that space for office space. For, for a separate business. If you want to use that space for office space for a separate business, you can actually just come in and take it over. Well, guess what the landlord said he wanted to do with this fully functioning restaurant that my friend had developed. He wanted to use it for office space. And so my friend was kicked out, the homeless shelter, the restaurant, the uh, smoothie bar, all of that, uh, this dream and everything that they had worked towards was ripped out from underneath of them. My friend wasn't in favor of this, but one of the guys who worked there said he was going to pour cement into all the restaurant-grade plumbing since the office space wasn't going to need it anymore. <laughs> My friend wasn't. I can neither confirm nor deny that that actually happened. Not long after that, an African friend of ours, she's from a southern part of Africa from Botswana, one of the, the most gifted, sweet, gracious, humble, capable, professional people that we know, uh, was teaching at a school, and her co-workers spread lies and, about her and put pressure on the school administration to, to let her go because they didn't like working with somebody who had brown skin. And so she was fired from her job. Around the same time, a third friend of ours just disappeared. Just disappeared. He was taken and put in a re-education facility for no other reason than for the fact that he belonged to the wrong ethnic minority in the eyes of those in power. He's been gone for years. He's still gone four years later. Friends, those are just a handful of stories from a small slice of time and a small slice of the world. We could go on and on telling stories from around the world and from right here in our own backyard in the United States of acts of injustice and acts of the wicked who are oppressing others. You have surely either faced your own instances of, of evil 
your own instances of wrongdoing in your own life, or looked on as friends of yours have suffered the pain and the difficulty of injustice, or maybe you've just been made aware of this as it's going on around the globe. It is weighty, and it is heartbreaking. If it's not weighty, and if it's not heartbreaking for you, it only shows that you haven't been paying attention, because this is a reality around us and around the world all the time in every country. As Christians, how should we respond? What should our perspective be? What are our potential pitfalls in considering this topic? What have we, uh, do we have any uh, degree of, of optimism or any reason for a degree of optimism and hope in such a world where these types of things happen all around us? Well, our text this morning is going to help us think through all of those issues. We're going to be in Psalm 37 this morning. Psalm 37. Please make your way there in your copy of God's Word. Psalm 37. As we look at this psalm, it's a, it's a lengthy psalm. We're going to see is the Christian response to Christless actions. The Christian response to Christless actions. I'm actually going to show five principles out of Psalm 37 of how we respond. What is the Christian response to Christless action? Five, uh, five principles or five points that we can take from this text. If you look at Psalm 37, again, it's a lengthy psalm, but if we did nothing else other than read God's Word with no comment on it this morning, we would all be the better for it. And so let's listen as we turn to God's Word together. Psalm 37, verse 1. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him, and He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land." In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose way is upright." Their sword shall enter their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows that the days of the blameless and their uh, heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine they have abundance, but the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the, green, the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. 
The wicked borrows but does not pay back, but the righteous is generous and gives. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. I have been young and I am now old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously and his children become a blessing. Turn away from evil and do good, so shall you dwell forever. For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom and his tongue speaks justice. The law of God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. The wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. The Lord will not abandon him to his power or let him be condemned when he is brought to trial. Wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree, but he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. Mark the blameless and behold the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace. But transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. The first principle I think we see in this passage that will be helpful for us considering how to respond in a Christ-like way to Christless actions is this. Number one, be aware of evil and injustice. Be aware of evil and injustice. This psalm is one that offers perspective regarding evildoers, regarding acts of injustice, regarding the works of the wicked, as you saw as we went through the passage, it's filled with teaching on uh, and perspective of the actions of evildoers. Verse 7, if you look there, it talks about the one who carries out evil devices. It means evil schemes, evil plans, plots by evil people against others. And in so doing, he, he prospers in his way. Not only does evil things, but he's actually, in, in some ways, it seems like he's rewarded for it. He's doing well and being blessed. His evil actions either give him a perceived advantage or somehow he maintains an advantage that he's obtained underhandedly. Similarly, you look in verse 12. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. That, that, that image of gnashing teeth. It's, it's a symbol of, of anger and of, of animosity. We were uh, one time in vacationing in Thailand, and we went to this island called Monkey Island, uh, where uh, it's one of those places they take you in this little Thai fishing boat out, and the monkeys actually descend on the boat, and you're actually throwing bananas at them as weapons to kind of pick them off before they uh, come and, and climb all over you. And we're there on the shore one time, and I look over, and uh, Sydney, my oldest daughter, who was fairly young at the time, uh, she was like, Dad, look, this monkey's smiling at me. And I look over, the monkey's like, hey, <laughs> like 
he's not. He's gnashing his teeth at you. Like, get away from the monkey. Uh, and, and so that's the image here that, that they, it's, a, it's, a, it's an image or wherever you see that in, in biblical imagery, you see that throughout the Bible. It's an image of animosity and of anger. And that's what we see here with these violent people. It's a dog burying its teeth. The, the violence and power of these evildoers is seen in verse 14. Look at verse 14, that they are violent and they, they use weapons of violence. You see the sword and the bow mentioned there. Verse 32, it says that the wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. So friends, in all of this, we, we see an intentional adversity and intentional opposition from people in this world. So we need to recognize, be aware of evil and injustice. We live in a fallen world, a world in which all of us commit sins and respond in sinful ways. People take advantage of other people. People give preferential treatment to some over others. People abuse and misuse others. People step on others in their pursuit of climbing the corporate ladder and their own advancement. Christians are persecuted. Entire groups of people are attacked or mistreated because of the fear and insecurities of other groups. This is the world we live in. Church, be aware of evil. We need to be vigilant. You might not feel, feel, feel this now, but given the opportunity, this will come to your doorstep. And how will you respond? God would have us be aware of and be vigilant against the purposes and the, the assaults of the evil one and of evil people. This is true for you personally, but also so you can live in a helpful way in, in a local and global community of believers. We must be aware that evil is being done to brothers and sisters, even if it's not readily apparent to us, even if we don't see it, even if we don't feel it personally in our lives on a daily basis, we need to be aware that this is happening to those around us and to those around the world. Hebrews 13.3 says, Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you are also in the body. We can't live that out. We can't remember those who are mistreated and those who are in prison, like Hebrews 13.3 calls us to, if, we're distra if we've distracted ourselves from the horrors of humanity. We can't rightly pray for the persecuted in other countries and weep with our own fellow church members if we have our heads in the sand. James 1.27, pure and undefiled religion is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress. We can't proactively care for someone who is vulnerable or weak or uh, oppressed or disadvantaged if we ignore that evils are there. So church, maybe it would just be a helpful exercise by way of application this week to ask people around you how they experience wickedness in their life. Just to have that as a point of conversation, say, are there any ways that you feel like you're seeing the acts of, of evil people around you in your life and the oppression from wickedness? You might be surprised to hear of unwanted sexual advances or unethical temptations at work or experiences of racism or threats of physical harm or experiences of emotional abuse. That's going on far more than we all realize. So make that a point of conversation in our discipleship so that we can be aware of these things that are going on. 
And if you want to know that globally, that we can have those conversations locally. If you want to know things globally, just look at BBC World News and pray through things that are going on. There are websites, PrayerCast, uh, The Joshua Project, Operation World, great ways to cast our eyes to the world and see the things that are going on and to, to be aware of the evil and injustice that's all around us. So that's number one in the text. I think we just start by a confession that this is a thing. This is a thing. It's a thing globally. It's a thing locally. Be aware of evil. Be aware of injustices. Secondly, anticipate temptations. So not only are we to be aware of, of, uh, of injustice and of evil deeds, we need to anticipate temptations. To realize that there are evil inclinations even within your own hearts. And how we see evil and respond to it. We must realize that there are going to be uh, some temptations before us. Ways that we are prone in the face of mistreatment. Ways that we are prone to react in, in thorny, fleshly ways. There are at least four that are mentioned in our text. The first way that we see is, is, is uh, the most obvious. It's this idea of fretting. Fretting. Such a danger is it that we see it three times in the text. Verse 1, verse 7, verse 8. Did you catch those as we read through? Fret not, fret not, fret not. Well, what does that mean? My guess is that for many of us in this room, that's not a word that you're usually kind of throwing around that, oh, I was fretting today about something. What does that mean to fret not? In my mind, when I hear that, it's not an entirely unfamiliar word. I've heard it before. But in my mind, it's kind of like a, you're a little worried about something. Now, don't be so fretful. It means you're a, little, hey, you're a little worried, a little anxious about something, and we should tend not to be that way. But the Hebrew word for this is a word that means to burn. To burn. You remember when God was trying to call Moses, and Moses kept deflecting? God's trying to call him into action to lead, and he's like, yeah, you got the wrong guy. And he's like, no, 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 but I've called you. Well, I can't speak very well. And, and, and God is, is uh, having this back and forth with Moses. The text says, is Exodus 4.14, it says, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. It's the same word that's used here. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. He, there's a sense in which Moses keeps deflecting God's call in his life, and God was, was started to burn towards him. That's the same thing. It's the same Hebrew word for fret not. In fact, the, the Holman Christian Standard Bible translates the way, I think it's the best English translation for this, Psalm 37, verses 1, 7, and 8, where we see fret not. They render it as do not be agitated. It's a better understanding of what's going on here. There is a temptation for us when we face wrongdoing, when we face acts of evil, when we face injustice to start to be agitated, not, not in a right way. There's a right way that we should be agitated against those things, but to, but to start to burn with agitation and response. And the text here says, do not do that. Again, we saw from Exodus 3 that the emotion itself isn't sinful. God does it. God burns in this way, but we're not God. We don't possess our responses perfectly as he does. And so if you look at Psalm 37, verse 8, fretfulness lies on the verge of great sin. See, in Psalm 37, verse 8, refrain from anger, forsake, forsake wrath, fret not yourselves, agitate not yourself, it tends only to evil. When we fret, when we get agitated and start to burn in our response to injustice, we are on the edge of a precipice. 
Psalm 37 would seek to not fan into flame that fretting, that agitation into a forest fire. It would say, fret not, agitate not, burn not. It would say, slow down. Don't burn, don't burn, don't burn. It tends to evil. There's a quote from a commentator on this passage. It says, we cannot too carefully watch against the insidious attacks of evil tempers. Even a little indulgence and irritability will torment us and displease God. We may not even fret. So earnest is the prophet on this point that he thrice warns us. It's a Puritan commentator, if you haven't caught that. We do not perhaps lay much stress on fretfulness as evil. We look upon it more as an unhappy temper of mind, bringing indeed its own punishment with it, but involving no vast amount of evil. Yet fretfulness, if unchecked and allowed to have its way undisturbed, will eventually undermine and corrode all that is valuable and estimable and lovely in the character. If you let this fretting, this burning, this agitation take root against the injustices that you face, it will, it will distort you. It will turn you in on yourself. It will corrupt you. Anticipate temptations. That will be a temptation for us as we face wrongdoings. A uh, second one that we see here in the text is envy. There you see that in verse 1 as well. The burden of this psalm is responding well towards evil deeds. And that's part of the point, but it's also evil deeds by which people are gaining their own advantage or not receiving what we think should be their just desserts from such evil deeds. And when we see that, we're prone to envy. Why did he get that promotion after what he did? Why does she seem to have the life I want with that character? We see this and we, we, we not only tend to burn, but we start to get envious of the evil people who do things and step on people and seem to get their way and get exactly what they want. Third temptation in the text is anger. So avoid agitation, avoid envy, avoid anger. You see that in verse 8. Verse 8, refrain from anger and forsake wrath. You know, commentary after commentary as I was studying this text this week identified this anger specifically as anger at God. And I'm saying, refrain from anger, especially anger at God. Spurgeon categorized it as this, anger against the arrangements of providence. When we are mistreated, when we receive injustice, that is a very real temptation for us. To, 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 to start to have anger against the arrangements of providence, as Spurgeon put it. And I think that's right because there is a very right and very appropriate anger that we should have towards injustice, towards sin. We should not experience injustice and say, oh, that's fine. No, there should be a righteous anger that that is wrong and it should not be that way. But if that starts to distort itself and, and, and uh, shift to where it starts to be an anger at God instead of merely the anger at wrongs and moral evils, as Ephesians 4.26 says, be angry and do not sin. Right? Realize there may be a, a temptation in your own life as you receive acts of wrongdoing that will tempt you towards anger at God 
for the hand that's been dealt. And the fourth one here, the fourth thing that we see as far as temptations is wrath. Right? Taking your own vengeance. Responding with sin because you've been sinned against. Don't destroy yourself by fanning into flame negative emotions when you've been wronged. There is a good and right anger, as I've said, that we should have at sin and wrongdoing. You ought to be angry, but not wrathful and not angry at God. So friends, anticipate temptations. And there are others. There are others. And, and this is where we do good work in community as you start to think through ways that whenever you face this, that, that you're tempted towards, uh, towards negative emotions or tempted towards sin in some way. Whether it, that's uh, you receiving wrongdoing or you just observing your friends that have been uh, oppressed or mistreated or, or the, uh, born the, the brunt of in, injustice, there can also be those, those temptations towards sin that well up in your heart as well. Pray. Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. Be sure that there are friends in your life who have both the courage and the green light in your life to rebuke you if you're responding wrongfully to wrongful actions. People can step in and say, brother, sister, I, I love you. I feel your pain. You, you can't react that way. It, it, is, it is morphing from, from, from something good and righteous to something sinful and distorted, and it's only going to eat you up. It's causing you to burn. Turn from that. Well, a third thing in our text here, in addition to being aware of evil and injustice, anticipating temptations, the third thing is a focus on the Lord. A focus on the Lord. We've looked at some of the things that the text tells us not to do, right? Don't fret. Don't be envious. Don't be angry. Don't be wrathful. But then the psalm, and especially the first eight verses, is thick with commands on how to respond positively to evil deeds and injustices. We'll look at many of these in our next two points. There's a list of them. Verse 3, trust in the Lord and do good. Verse 3 again, befriend faithfulness. Verse 4, delight yourself in the Lord. Verse 5, commit your way to the Lord, trust in Him. Verse 7, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Verse 27, turn away from evil and do good. Verse 34, wait for the Lord and keep his way. Verse 37, mark the blameless and behold the upright. And so we're given positive things, and I think these are all ways that we can focus on the Lord in the midst of our receiving injustices, in the midst of our receiving painful pushbacks in our faith. One of them we see here is, is verse 3, trust and the Lord. We'll highlight a couple of these. Trust in the Lord. This is the first positive command that we have in the psalm because faith has the ability to cure fretfulness. That's why David mentions this. Faith has the ability to cure fretfulness. The, the cool, calming waters of faith can extinguish the fire of your agitation and burning. Trust God is the first command given. Now note carefully what we're not saying. We're not saying trust God is the only way that you're meant to respond to injustice in the sense that somebody faces injustice in, your li in their life and you can say, well, just trust God, trust Jesus. It's as easy as that, right? It's not the only way that we're called to respond, but it must be the first way that we're called to respond and the foundational way that we're called to respond. 
When you face the business end of the stick of injustice or oppression or otherwise evil acts of the wicked, the answer in its totality isn't as simple as trust God. But if that's not the foundational, the foundation of the way that you respond, the starting block of the way that you respond, the sins that we talked about in the, in the last point are sure to follow. Envy, wrath, sinful anger, burning agitation. We have to believe that there is a God who knows us and who loves us and who cares for us and who both knows what is good and will accomplish what is good and a God who proved that to us in giving us his son. We have to know that. We have to start there. Knowing that there's a God who is sovereign We have to believe that he saved us and is sanctifying us, that he is transforming us more and more into the image of his son and that he's using everything in our lives to do that. We who are saved by him should live in light of the fact that we're saved by him. How in Ephesians 6 are we called to extinguish the fiery darts of the evil one? A weapon of wrath? A battle axe of anger? It's a shield of faith that we first and foremost trust in the Lord, that he is good and that he cares for us. Second positive response here in the text that we'll look at, verse 4, delight yourself in the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord. What a great verse. In fact, if there's a verse from Psalm 37 that you're familiar with before we read it this morning, it's probably this one. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. If you've ever heard John Piper speak, you've heard him beat this biblical drum. In fact, if you've ever heard him speak anywhere at any time on any topic, he's probably talked about this. God's people are called to delight in God. Listen to Piper. When God is our deepest pleasure, we display him as our highest treasure. This is why the pursuit of joy is not optional, because the pursuit of God's glory is not optional. The fight for joy is not peripheral because uh, God's pursuit of his glory is not peripheral. Piper is saying that that we, we will glorify and give honor to the things that we enjoy. We talk freely and frequently about the things that we enjoy and the things that we love. And in doing so, we make much of them. We magnify them. We glorify them. We exalt them. We do that to the things that we enjoy. And we're called here in the text to do that with God, to delight in him. How does that relate to our topic at hand? To the idea of injustice and wrongdoing? Jesus has to be our treasure. Jesus has to be our treasure in such a way and to such an extent that even if we are persecuted for our faith, even if we receive unjust treatment, even if we receive the the deeds of wrongdoers and evil people, even if we do that, that Jesus is enough. He is our unique delight so that even in the sour situations that we still enjoy the all-satisfying nourishment of our Savior. Because he is our delight. Delight in him, verse 4 says. And he will give you the desires of your heart. That's not talking about your casual wishes. Delight in God and he's going to give you a beamer. That's not what that's talking about. 
Delight in God and he will give you the desires of your heart, meaning the, the deep-seated, deep down, intimate, true, real, fundamental desires of your heart. Set him as your treasure and he will minister to you on that level. That is what he'll do. Delight yourself in the Lord. Another one, verse 7. In positive ways that we respond. Verse 7, be still and wait patiently. Be still and wait patiently. Well, what does it mean to be still? Friends, we remember that we're playing a long game here. It's a marathon. And we have a wise God who knows us and cares for us. We can trust him. We can wait on him. Our tendency is to, to, to leap to action, to take matters into our own hands, to take out the sword of Peter and start slicing ears off. Jesus says, take a break, take a breath. His grace, as he reminded Paul, is sufficient and his power is made perfect in weakness. So the text tells us to be still and wait patiently. We may not see all wrongs righted in this life, but we will see all wrongs righted. More on this in a minute. Final thing here of positive response that we'll highlight is, is to know that the Lord's little is better than the enemy's abundance. Look at verse 16 and 17. The Lord's little is better than the enemy's abundance. Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. It's an issue of perspective here. When we delight in God, we're revealing uh, that, that, we, that we trust Him, that we're reveling in that reality that He gives us what is good. The 17th century British pastor put it this way, that a godly man's little is really better than a wicked man's estate is because it comes from a better hand comment on that verse. Isn't that, isn't that a, just a fabulous observation? That, that as we read verses 16 and 17 saying that uh, better is a little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. We know that's true that a godly man's little is better than a wicked man's estate because it comes from a better hand. A hand of special love and not merely a hand of common providence. So if you know the Lord, you know that whatever he gives you is good because if it's not, he wouldn't give it. We can trust him that his special hand uh, of, of divine providence gives the righteous what is good, even if it's a little. So true. God works all things together for good. Be aware of evil and injustice. Anticipate temptations that you're going to have when you face evil and injustice or when you watch others face evil and injustice. Focus on the Lord. Fourthly, do what is good. Do what is good. You know, it was really hard as I was, I was trying to come up with these, these points and how we're going to go through this text. There's a lot of text here. There's many things that we're not going to comment on. Uh, unfortunately, there's, there's a lot to, uh, to cover in Psalm 37. We won't get to every little detail here, but, but one of the things was, was actually separating out the last point from this point. Focus on the Lord from do what is good. 
Indeed, it's probably not entirely proper for me to have done so because these are two, really two movements of the same action. Trust in the Lord, do what is good. Trust in the Lord, do what is good. These are the two movements of the same action. The, the, the doing what is good is actually evidence that we're trusting in God in the midst of injustice. How, how do we know we're trusting in God in the midst of injustice? Well, because we're still committed to doing what is good. And the trusting of God isn't just a nebulous concept. Well, trust in God, what does that look like? Well, it looks like doing something. Trust God has a look to it. It has a feel to it. I mean, trust God and do what is good. It's not just this nebulous concept of, of trusting him, but, but it's actually us positively, verse 3, engaging in certain actions and doing things. We are to worship God and turn to him, cling to him, and then have that character flavor our actions. To do good. Still in verse 3, in the second half of verse 3, befriend faithfulness. It shows that your trust in God is, is real because it, it, would, it would often be so much easier just to take matters into your own hands. But those who are responding in a Christ-like way to Christless actions are committed to not returning evil for evil, recompense for recompense. God says, trust me and do good. But it's hard when somebody crosses me. He says, I know. Trust me and do good. That's what trust looks like. Commit your way to God, verse 5 says. Commit your way to God. Trust him and he will act. Friends, you, you can't control what others are going to do to you, what others are going to say about you, how others are going to treat you. We can't control that. But we can commit our way to the Lord. And in doing so, we're doing that as a, as a move of trust, knowing that he will act, that he will do what is right. There are others. Be generous, verse 21 says. Turn away from evil and do good, verse 27 says. Wait for God and keep his way, verse 34 says. And we could go on and on as you look through this psalm. There's all these positive actions of ways that we are meant to continue to, to do good and to do what is righteous, regardless of what is done to us. Let me just highlight one more. Look at verse 30 and 31. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. The law of God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. We see the wicked and the righteous talked about, but here we see a test whereby the godly might be known. They speak with wisdom, having God's law in their heart. Friends, this is a reminder and an encouragement for us to, to advocate for justice to give honest verdicts, to treat people equitably and fairly, to not be given in our own preferential treatment or prejudices that we might have. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom and his tongue speaks justice. The law of God is in his heart and his steps do not slip. Trust in the Lord and do good in Psalm 37. 
is a reminder to us also that we as Christians ought never to find ourselves on the injustice end of the spectrum of those who are perpetrating injustice towards others. And that happens among people who claim to be Christians and profess faith in Christ. That they would violate this very thing that they are not speaking justice and that they are not uttering wisdom, that the law of God does not seem to be in their hearts. This psalm is written from the perspective of wicked people afflicting God's people, but we know that God's people can turn on their own, or at least those professing to believe, be believers do that. And often in the church that happens, it ought not to be that way. Those with God's law utter wisdom and speak justice. A fifth and final point here in our text is to consider eternity consider eternity. So in the Christian response to Christless actions, the Christ-like response to Christless actions that we see in Psalm 37, beware of evil and injustice, anticipate temptations, focus on the Lord, do what is good, and consider eternity. This is a prevailing theme throughout this psalm. It's a constant reminder to consider the end of the wicked and the end of the righteous, or the future of the wicked and the future of the righteous. Though the wicked seems to be winning now, seems to be prospering now, the text says in verse 1, he will fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. And you can just scan throughout this psalm and see that over and over again, can't you? Look at verse 8, he shall be cut off. Verse 10, in just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Verse 13, but the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. Verse 17, the arms of the wicked shall be broken. Verse 20, the wicked will perish. The end of verse 20, they vanish like a smoke, they vanish away. The end of verse 22, shall be cut off. Down in verse 28, at the end of verse 28, the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The end of verse 38, the future of the wicked shall be cut off. We see these verses throughout as a reminder that regardless of the reality that we see now, we are to keep the future in mind. Let that also drive us. We, we don't look at that. Remember, every time we uh, see warnings in Scripture, those are an act of mercy. Those are an act of grace. God gives warnings regarding wickedness, not because He delights in punishment, but that He delights in patience. He gives warnings throughout Scripture, so that we see those, and if those rightly describe us, that we take that as an opportunity to turn from our sin, to repent, and to trust in Him. And so if, you see, if you're reading this here as a non-Christian with us this morning, the, the point of this isn't to, to, to say, ah, gotcha. That, that's not the point here. That's not God's heart. God's heart is a pleading one to say, this is the end. It is a mercy that he tells us what the future holds so that we will rightly assess and recognize how we're living and our standing before him and turn from our sin and trust in him. 
So he gives that to us. All those statements throughout Psalm 37 as as an act of mercy and grace towards you if you don't know Jesus as your Savior. And he gives it as a matter of perspective if we've been sitting back and watching evil done and wondering, will God ever do anything about evil? He will. He will. Be patient and wait and consider eternity. On the other hand, verse 11, the meek shall inherit the land. See that in verse 11, that the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. And Jesus picked this up in Matthew chapter 5, verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And this idea of, of inheritance and heritage is another repeated theme that we could run through this psalm and just see over and over again the, the words that, that are given about uh, the, God's people, how they will inherit the land. Verse 9, those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. Verse 11, the meek shall inherit the land. Verse 18, their heritage will remain forever. Verse 22, the Lord shall, uh, those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land. Verse 27, so you shall dwell forever. Verse 29, the righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. Verse 34, wait for the Lord and keep his way. He will exalt you to inherit the land. He's putting before us not just an image here of the land of Canaan, but of the greater land that is represented there, that God has a future for his people to dwell with him safely and securely forever. It's reminding God's people that their great interests will never be disturbed or dislodged. Because we are sons, we are heirs. And because we are heirs of God, our inheritance will be everlasting. He's reminding us of those truths. In summary form, verses 37 and 38, he says, Mark the blameless and behold the upright. He will bring forth righteousness and justice. We are meant to set our sights not only on this life, but on the life to come. He will punish those who are gaining evil advantage. He will reward his saints. It just might not happen on the timeline that we would set. And this reality calls all of us, whether you're here this morning as a non-Christian, or whether you're here this morning and you've been a Christian as long as you can remember, calls all of us to consider Christ. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter 2 verses 21 to 25 says this, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving for you an example. Right? So in your suffering, Peter says, you've been called to something because Christ also suffered for you. To this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving for you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Does that sound like Psalm 37? Sounds exactly what like Psalm 37 is telling us. That Jesus, when he was afflicted, he kept trusting and trusting himself to the one who judges justly. He didn't return evil for evil. He, he wasn't given to, to wrath and to burning and to agitation and to sin. Wasn't given to any of that. He rejected that. Verse 24 of 1 Peter 2, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, 
that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Jesus laid down his life, suffering the greatest injustice of all time, and he bore it because of your rebellion and because of mine. The good news of Christianity, in other words, orbits around this idea of justice and injustice. It's the story of our faith. It's the good news of Christianity. It orbits around this concept of wicked deeds done to the righteous. Our experience, but a mere shadow of his, and his indeed took place so that we might be saved, so that we might try to live like him and follow the example that he has, been, that he has set for us in securing our salvation by dying in our place for our sins, that he took the wrath that we deserved and the punishment that we deserved. He bore that in his body, his body broken, his blood shed for us. Because he did that, we are meant to look at our beautiful Savior who has freed us from the shackles of wickedness and of injustice and given us hope that one day we might rise from the grave just as he did as the first fruits. That we will one day be where he is as he is. Christians, you are meant to follow his example. He suffered, but he did not threaten. He continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly for eternity. And if you're not a Christian, again, the words about the wicked fading away are offered as a gracious warning if you don't know Jesus. That doesn't have to be true of you, that the wicked will fade away if you'll repent and trust in Christ. The psalm ends these two verses. Verses 39 and 40. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in Him. Salvation is from the Lord. May He be the refuge for all of us in the midst of this fallen wicked world in which we live. May we keep our eyes on him, trusting in him and doing good. Let's pray.